be going to 2 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to start. I'll remind you just of a couple of things that are coming up. Uh, this week, this Thursday night, uh, the fountain will be here. Uh, those of you that don't know, that is it's a multi-church. We're trying to, trying to help. We provide the, the location. Uh, John Cook has been, for years, has been faithful to try to do this to bring uh, churches together across denominational lines and, and um, across areas and uh, to get them to come together and worship. There's somebody different that speaks every, every month and then a different group that, that does uh, some worship. Then um, on the 26th, we'll be doing Sanctity of Life Sunday, and then we've got two things that'll really be going on uh, Sunday, February the 2nd. That is the anniversary of our founding five years ago. And so we'll be, we'll be celebrating that along with having a uh, kind of a potluck lunch after service. And also we'll be doing Scout Sunday that Sunday. Tanner's going to lead every bit of that 100% all up here. But look at it. <laughs> so, um, so hopefully we're going we're gonna to have a, a large group of, of Scouts here and just excited to, to celebrate um, a lot of stuff that Sunday. So, so that's what we've got going on. Today, what we're going to be talking about is just exactly what we just sang, when I don't know what to do. Sometimes I think we, um, we pretend like, or maybe we inadvertently convince people that when you come to Christ and we talk about God being good and we talk about God providing and doing all these different things, that somehow that's supposed to look like um, that you never have a question about what am I supposed to do? I'm in this situation. I've got this thing that's happened. I've got this report from the doctor. I've got this that's happened in my family or whatever, and, and I don't know what to do. And we act like maybe at times that we're not supposed to bring that into the church, that we're not supposed to bring that to other people. We, we, maybe pride gets in where we feel like we need to look like, well, man, I've been saved for 15 years. I shouldn't, I shouldn't look like that. I don't know what to do in this moment. And, and we try to find something spiritual or whatever else, but the reality is that our heart in many moments in life says, I may know what I say I'm supposed to do, but I feel like I don't know what to do. And it's not, it's not that we can't find Scripture. It's not that we can't find that, but it's just, it's just being real. Being real in saying that in that moment, even if you say, well, you know, uh, getting God's word or prayer, do this or whatever, but I still feel like I don't know what to do. Oftentimes because that this idea of that we're going to do something like wait upon God, it's not doing something, right? We want to do something. Man, I, I want to go, particularly uh, uh, us men, we're real bad about it, right? You know? That's why we get in so much trouble with our wives half the time because, you know, she wants to tell you something. She wants to talk to us about something, and we won't fix it. And she's just wanting to, to, to us to listen. And we're going, I, well, don't tell me if you don't want me to tell you how to fix it, right? That's, that's the way we act sometimes. We, you know, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. She didn't want to, she may know how to fix it. She just needs to tell you how she feels about it. The reality is sometimes when any of us are going through things in life, sometimes we have that feeling of, I don't know what to do, even though I know what I'm supposed to do. Sounds conflicting, right? But that's the way life is. That's the way life is. I, 
I feel like I ought to do something, and what I know God wants me to do doesn't feel like doing something. Ironically, it's the hardest thing to do. So we're going we're gonna to look at 2 Kings chapter 19. We're going to start there. I'll give you a little background about the story about Hezekiah. We're going to look at uh, a situation in chapter 19, and then we're going to look at a situation in chapter 20, because it's two different things, but it's really the same result, and it's the same challenge that happens, and we see a similar response by Hezekiah. And, and I think this is really in that moment when we don't know what to do, we're going to see what a king who had all the resources at his disposal, but this king, we're going to see what he did when he didn't know what to do, right? So I'm going to give you a little background on, on Hezekiah. Hezekiah was 25 when he came to the throne. You can see some of that at the, uh, uh, back a little earlier in, uh, in, the, in 2 Kings. But he's 25 years old when he comes to the throne. He reigns for 29 years, all right? So he's, so he's what, 53, 54. We'll get there in a minute. He's 54 when he ends up, uh, when he ends up his reign is over. He does right before God. That's, that's right out of the gate. When we see him come to the throne, we see that he does the right things before God. He serves God. Some of the things that he did was he removed pagan worship out of the land. He tore down the idols. And here was an interesting one. He even broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made when they were in the wilderness. Now, quick reminder on the story of the brazen serpent, this bronze serpent. Remember, there was, they were in a situation where there were these, these serpents all in the land. Sounds like a weird story, but they were attacking the people of Israel. And Moses ended up making, having, having this bronze serpent made, and, and it was going to serve as a typification of Christ. And they, they lifted it up on a pole, and if the people came and they looked at this thing that was lifted up, then they, they would be healed from the snake bites and all this. The problem was, just like all of us, the people of Israel started ending up worshiping the thing that God used instead of worshiping the God that used the thing. You know, we have that tendency. You see it with people. They'll drive 250 miles to go to hear some person, some minister speak, or that's going to pray or whatever. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go support people or whatever, but then they can't make it to church on Sunday. They go, well, but that guy, he has all of this and he has all that. Well, if we had 5,000 people that'd show up, then you can have that kind of stuff too. But people start worshiping somebody. They'll buy every book. They'll listen to every CD. They'll do it. I'm not saying that you don't want to identify if God is using somebody or whatever. But make sure you keep it in perspective. You don't need to worship a single person. You don't need to just be hooked on following a speaker, a pastor, an evangelist, somebody on TV. You follow God. Because if all of us are removed, God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And at some point, we're going to let you down. We're going to not be in the greatest mood one day. We're going, to, we're going to somehow fail you, but God will not. But the people of Israel had gotten where they would worship this bronze serpent. So when Hezekiah comes into power and is, and is reigning over the people of Israel, led by God, he not only removed the pagan worship, but he even broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made and got that thing out of the way too. There's a lesson in that about that sometimes we think that the only people who are doing idol worship are people who are outside the community of faith. 
And they're worshiping these things out there. They're worshiping money and they're worshiping all this other stuff. But if we're not careful, we can allow the things that God utilizes to bless us to become something that we worship. You can worship the building. You can worship the service. You can worship whatever. You can worship the style of music that you do. That's why people fight about it. Oh, I just can't believe they're doing you know, some of that contemporary stuff. Well, you know, we can't be 90 years old and die off and not have anybody, you know, that's ever reached. Because, but then, you know, well, I can't believe they're doing those old hymns. Well, we're not all 14. Right? You know, we're a family. We got some ages. And we'll stay away from how big the spread is. We won't talk about that. But sometimes we can worship things that have nothing to do with... I, hear, I, I, I grew up in an, in, an environment, in a church environment, where if it was easy if someone wasn't careful, hey, you could play the right song. And I've said this before. You could play the right song, play it the right way, hit the right notes, say the right thing. And, and church was on. People were, woo, ready to worship, you know. That's why I like that song that we sang today, When the Music Fades. Quick version of the story. That's an older song. A quick ver- uh, story about that is Matt Redmond, when he wrote that in their church, he said God actually was dealing with them during a season in the church he was in that they had gotten where that they were just worshiping because of the style of music. And so they went for a time period with no music in their services. Like nothing. Not And he said, because we needed to figure out whether we were worshiping God because the music kind of moved us or were we worshiping God? Would we come and worship God through the word? Would we come and worship God through prayer without singing, without instruments, without anything? And then coming out of that season, God put that song in his heart and he wrote that song. When the music fades and all is swept away and I simply come. So Hezekiah removed all of this stuff, pagan worship idols, even the brazen serpent. And Assyria was the uh, neighboring country that was just trying to plague Israel. They were constantly attacking them, and they actually had already taken Samaria. And in chapter 19, or in 18 and 19, what we see is we find that Hezekiah, um, the, the Assyrian Uh, king and his people after having taken Samaria, they were sending messengers to Hezekiah and to the people of Israel and they were mocking God. They were trying to intimidate the people and they were telling them, we're going to come and we're going to take you all away. We're going to lay it to you guys. You're going to be slaves. We're going to drag you away out of your own land. Don't believe what your king is telling you. He's telling you God's going to do this and God's going to do that. Don't believe it. Don't believe it at all. In fact, if you look at chapter 18, verse 33, or we'll back up to 31, here's what he says. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is what the king of Assyria says, Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and every one of you may drink from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this land from the power of the king of Assyria? Man, they're, they're, doing, they're doing 
flat out propaganda. They're, they are just doing this whole, this whole mental warfare thing. They are, they are out here just saying, hey, don't listen to your king. He says God's going to take care of you. He says God's going to do this. But look, have we not come in and pretty much done whatever we wanted to? Have any of the gods in the past ever kept us from coming in and taking over? Don't believe this. And ironically, if you remember the, the children of Israel, God had, had always you know, made a promise to them that they would go to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. He, at one point he talks about, he says, you know, you'll, you'll be able to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant, you know, and all this stuff. What does the enemy tell them? The enemy says, why don't you go ahead and surrender to us? Because if you surrender to us, we'll take care of you and we'll take you to a land that's got new wine and it's got honey and it's flowing with all this stuff. See, the enemy's always trying to tell you, I'll do for you what God's not doing for you in this moment, right? Because when you're looking at something in the moment of life, it happened, it has happened. And the enemy will come along and say, look what God didn't do. Look what God didn't provide for you. Do you really think that God's going to keep this from happening? Why don't you just go ahead and give in and live the way that I want you to live? The enemy is going to challenge us that God can't do anything about our situation. He doesn't give up on this. Because when they get over to into chapter 19, when we get to verse 4, we start seeing all kind of stuff go on. He says, oh, perhaps Yahweh your God will hear the words whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke him for the words that Yahweh your God has heard. Hezekiah is talking to the people and he says, oh, here's what you need to do. Then the, king, the servants in, in, verse, in verse 8, or uh, I'm sorry, verse 5, the servants of the king of Hezekiah went to Isaiah. Now Isaiah told them, said, the Lord says, don't be afraid because of the words you've heard that the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me about. I'm about to put a spirit in him and he'll hear a rumor and return to his own land where I will cause him to fall by the sword. I want you to drop down to verse 14 in chapter 19. Here's what this says. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers. So the enemy had sent a letter. Enemy didn't want it to just be rumor. Enemy sent him a letter. Said, here's what we're going to do to you. Here's, what, here's what's going to happen. Your God's not going to hold up. You're going to end up in shambles. We're going to take your kingdom away from you. You're not going to be able to survive this. And Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. Then he went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out before the Lord. When I don't know what to do. Hezekiah didn't pretend like the enemy wasn't saying what they were saying. What we learned from Hezekiah is he's not saying pretend like you didn't get the report from the doctor. He's not saying pretend like your job didn't tell you what they told you. Hezekiah's not saying pretend like your family situation is not what it is. 
Now I know I read all this stuff where, you know, people say, oh, you need to speak about, you know, what, what as if it is what you want it to be and all that. Look, I'm just telling you, Hezekiah's situation was he did not deny what was going on. He took the letter that the enemy sent and he read the thing. He read every last word that the enemy was saying about what God's not going to do, what we're going to do to you, what's going to happen to your people, what's going to happen to your kingdom. It's all going to be in ruins. It's all going to, I mean, he just digested it, but he didn't stop there. And sometimes that's where we stop. We get what the enemy's told us and we immediately go into the woe is me. And it is hard, but we stop at the, this is going to happen. Hezekiah, though, took this letter. He went to God's house. He got himself in a place where he could meet with God. Now, I don't care if you got to meet with God in the back room, in your bedroom. you got to shut the door, go on the back porch, drive to the park. I don't care where you got to be. Today, you can do it here. But Hezekiah went in and he took that letter that they had sent him and he spread the whole thing out. He didn't just lay it down. It wasn't stapled together and he laid it down. He took the whole thing and spread it out before God. He let him see the full expanse of what the enemy's saying. And in verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. This is what he said. Lord God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria, listen to that, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods in the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, please save us from His hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Hezekiah took this letter and he goes into God's house and he spread it all out and he said, God, I want you to hear. God, I want you to see. God, I'm speaking the reality that yes, these Assyrian kings, they have laid waste to every nation they've come across. Those nations had their own gods. And the Assyrians have taken their gods, their idols, and have broken them and thrown them in the fire and everything else because they weren't gods anyway. But I'm asking you to save us so that everybody will know that you're God. Three things I want you to catch out of what Hezekiah did. The first one, we just he spread the letter out before God in the temple. The second one, he prayed. And the third one was he focused the situation on God and not on themselves. He didn't say, God, save us so that we can live. He didn't say, God, provide for us so that we won't go through difficulty. He said, God... I'm asking you, save us from his hand so that all the... Boy, now that's a powerful thing because when we go to God, we want to pray and say, God, do this so that the pain will stop. God, do this so that the hurt goes away. God, do this so that I don't have to suffer through the financial challenges. God, do this so that Hezekiah went to God and said, God, do this so that everyone will know that you are God. 
so that you receive glory, so that your name is what is focused on, God, not so that it is about us. But this is not the only situation that Hezekiah goes through where he is faced with, here is a difficulty, and he doesn't know what to do, and what does he do? If we just go from chapter 19 to chapter 20. By the way, just in case while you're turning, since you got to flip one whole page or else you got to scroll through one screen. Doesn't take as long, you know. It's not as good as like when you got to flip to a whole other book of the Bible or whatever. You get some preaching time in between there. You just want to know what God did. God ended up speaking to Isaiah in, in chapter 19 and told them, said, look, I heard you. And I'm going to solve the problem. I'm going to take care of what the issue is. In fact, in verse 27, he says, I know you're sitting down. He starts to speak about the people that he tells them, go and, go and tell these folks from, from Assyria. I know you're sitting down, you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you're raging against me and your arrogance have reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. I will make you go back the way you came. This will be the sign for you. This year you will eat what grows on its own. In the second year what grows from that. But in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. <coughs> the surviving remnant of the house of Israel will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For a remnant will go out from Jerusalem and survivors from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Catch this. Verse 32. Therefore this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or build up an assault ramp against it. He will go back on the road that he came and he will not enter this city. Enemies talking to people. Enemies sending emissaries to go and tell them, broadcast this propaganda. We're about to do this to you. Why don't you just go ahead and surrender? We're going to do these things to you. Hezekiah spreads the whole thing out before God, lays all of it out, says, God, see it, hear it. I'm asking you, protect us for your sake. God tells his prophets, go and tell them. Tell the enemy. Speak to the enemy. And tell them, I I've seen you raging against me and your arrogance. And I'm not going to tolerate it. Then he says, this is what the Lord says about the king's here. He says, he's not even going to come to this city. He'll never shoot an arrow here. He's threatened you. He's spoken all this stuff. But he says, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it where he never shoots an arrow. He doesn't come up before it with a shield. There's not going to be an assault ramp. He's never even going to, he's going to go back on the road that he came. He won't even enter this city. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Notice he still didn't say he was doing anything for Hezekiah. He didn't even say he was doing anything for those people right there. God had made a promise to David about them being able to continue and about what, their, what, their, what the lineage was going to be and what the land was going to be. And so God says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it for my sake and I'm going to do it for the sake of my servant David. That night, verse thirty. That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and he lived in 
Nineveh. One day, while he was worshiping the temple of his god Nishrach, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Arad. Then his son, Esar Haddon, became king in his place. God told him, says, I'm going to defend this city. And in the night, 185,000 men. That's a big army. There's a big army out there coming against them. See, it doesn't deny that the army's lined up. That's, that's why when we, when, we, when we have someone having a, an issue in their life, pretending like it's not there is not healthy for us. Not as believers. Well, we're just going to speak as if this thing isn't. It is. But it doesn't have to be. God can do something. God may choose. God was going to heal everything. I've said it before. We just never die in this life. He is going to heal everything in some fashion because even when we pass out of this earthly existence, then we're going to be forever healed and forever be with him. But in this life, if he healed everything, we'd just never pass out of this, this existence. But the reality is an enemy was lined up, an army was out there, and it was enough that even not killing all of them because he didn't kill the king and he broke camp and took some people and they went back, but he wiped out 185,000. Overnight, God says, I'm going to defend. I will defend this city. But then we get to chapter 20. Hezekiah doesn't go through something just one time in his life where he has to say, I don't know what to do. Beginning with verse 1, it says, in those days. So it's right after. It's not too long after he's just had all of this happen. God's done this miraculous thing. In those days, Hezekiah became terminally ill. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him. So God sends a prophet to tell him what's going to happen. So now it's not the enemy. Now natural life is happening. He's gotten sick. He's gotten terminally ill. And the prophet comes. God's going to tell him, here's what is going to happen. The prophet says to him, this is what the Lord says. Put your affairs in order for you are about to die. You will not recover. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Verse 3, please, Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleases you. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now he's really at a point of I don't know what to do. The enemy has come and said, we're going to attack, we're going to do these things. Now, there's always a possibility in that we might win, right? We might win this thing, because now it's a struggle. It hasn't happened yet. It's not there. I pray, and God says, I'm going to defend you. But now God has sent a message to you and said, you're sick, you're going to die. You're not going to recover. Now what do you do? When I don't know what to do because God sent a messenger and said, here's what's going to happen. And Hezekiah, he, may, he must be laying on his bed because you know, you think about it, he's sick, he's terminally ill. He's laying there and he turns his face away, he just looks at the wall. Y'all know how this is. When, when life is hard, when something is so bad, you don't even want to see people. You don't want to look at anybody. You don't want to talk to anybody. You want, just leave me alone. 
shut the door, get out of the room. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and he prays. Man, that's a short prayer right here. It's a cry of desperation. He's operating, I've said it before, he is operating with the only currency that he has. And the only currency that he has is to say, God, I have been faithful. Please remember that. And that's really all he says. God, remember, I've walked before you faithfully, wholeheartedly. I, I've, I've not done stuff because I felt like I had to. God, I didn't worship you because, well, it's Sunday we went and everybody expects me to raise my hand, you know, a little bit while they're singing. Right? I've done this wholeheartedly and I've done what pleases you. That's all he says. God, just remember. And then he weeps bitterly. He ugly cries. Let's just tell the truth. He's snotting. Y'all know how it is. He's crying and it's running. He's weeping bitterly. And all he did was say, God, just remember. I'm asking you, just remember that I've been faithful. Here's the challenge. You know, the, I, I think I shared this this Wednesday night. The Bible talks about it at one point. It says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those of an upright heart on whose behalf he can show himself Strong. Oh, that we could live a life where we could do like Hezekiah. Turn our face to the wall and say to God, God, please remember, I've been faithful. I've served you wholeheartedly and I've done what pleases you. He didn't say he was perfect. I mean, he couldn't have been. But his life was enough of a pattern of being faithful wholehearted service to God and doing what pleased God, that he could say that to God. Here's a heart-searching moment in this message for you right now. Could you speak to God in this moment and say to him, God, remember how I've walked before you. It has been faithfully. It has been wholeheartedly. And it has been doing what pleases you. If that's not what we could say to God. And again, I'm not talking about that you go, man, I've, I've jacked some junk up. Yeah, so we all have. But has your life been marked with more of that, more of being faithful, more of doing things wholeheartedly, more of pleasing God than it has been with living over here, you know, off the, off the lines in the ditch? Because we can change that. If, if, if the scales have been imbalanced out of that, you can change that starting today. You can start living a life that is faithful. You can start living a life that, where you do things for God wholeheartedly and, and you do what pleases God because the Bible tells us that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm always struck by the circular logic of part of this that, that God tells us how we should live. We don't have the ability to do it and so he gives us the strength to do it. So he puts the expectation out there, 
We can't meet the expectation, so he helps us meet the expectation and empowers us to meet the expectation so that he can be pleased with us. He said, you need to do like this so I can be pleased. I can't do that. You're going to be displeased. I will strengthen you to do that so that I can be pleased. Now do what I'm going to be pleased with. I'm going to help you. Wow. What did Hezekiah do this second time? He did the same thing he did the first time. In essence, he took his life and he spread it out before God. Just like the negative letter, he took the positive statement of his life and laid it out before God and said, God, would you see and hear this? And he prayed. And then he wept. Ironically, this one really is about him. The first one, he says, God, make this about you. In this one, he just says, God, remember me. He got personal. It was one thing when you're the guy that's in charge of the battle and you can tell people to go here, tell people to go there, tell somebody to get on the front line, tell somebody to be on the flank. There's a whole other thing when God says, it's you and you're not going to make it. And he says, God, please remember. I want you to catch something when you don't know what to do. And you've prayed like Hezekiah did when he laid the enemy's letter out. God tells a prophet... Hey, speak to them and tell them I'm going to defend. And God did. Then God moved, 185,000 got wiped out. King turned around and left. Never came up against the city. All the threats became empty. You know, Mark Twain, uh, I'm not going to be direct with the quote, but Mark Twain had a, had a quote one time about, you know, that 99% of the things that we worry about actually never come to pass. Most of the things that we fret and worry about and all this, they never even really come to pass. But then there are things that do. When you don't know what to do and you turn your face to the wall and you pray to God, what may happen is what happens here in 2 Kings chapter 20. Verse 4. As Isaiah was the prophet who had come and told him, and, Isaiah, and in chapter 4 here, in chapter 20 verse 4, says, Isaiah had not yet gone out of the inner courtyard. So he hasn't made it from where Hezekiah is all the way out of the inner courtyard. When the word of the Lord came to him, go back, tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord God of your ancestor David says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Look, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you'll go up to the Lord's temple. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. I... I there's not much that, that represents, you know, when you don't know what to do rather than God himself telling you, you are going to die. What you have, you're not going to recover from. There, there's not like a second opinion to go get. 
right? Well, God, could I ask the Father, <laughs> could you check with the Holy Ghost? Can confirm. I'd like to have a second opinion. Doesn't work that way. Hezekiah just turns and says, God, if you'd just remember how I've lived for you. He didn't really even ask for anything specific except just remember. He was throwing himself on the mercy of the court. Because I don't know what else to do. God has said, I'm not going to recover. God, I'm asking you just rethink it. Because I know you could do something. I'm asking you to think about how I've lived. I think it's so powerful to just, it doesn't always happen this fast, right? Doesn't always happen this fast that, man, we get bad news, we turn to God. Because sometimes I don't know that, that we always are able to turn to God and say, God, can you remember my life either? But it normally just doesn't happen this fast. I turn to God and say, God, would you please remember my life? And God stops the doctor and sends the doctor back to your room. But God stopped a prophet. And can you imagine Hezekiah lying there on his bed and he has just wept the sheets wet. He has wept bitterly. And I think this, I don't think, like I said, I don't think this was crying. I think this was weeping. This was just <coughs> shaking your body, quivering. I'm going to die. God has said I'm going to die. I don't want to die. He's 14 years into his reign, right? Because he reigns for 29 years, and he's, then he's going to die. God's going to give him 15 more years, so that means he's got to be 14 years into, into his reign. I'm not ready to die, God. prophet comes back God says I heard you pray and I saw you cry if those two things alone will take hold of your heart today because in those moments where you feel that I'm all alone I'm over here and I'm just weeping and I'm before God and I just don't feel like maybe God's not hearing or whatever else. And I want you to know that God, I believe, is speaking to you even through Hezekiah's moment and he is saying, I heard your prayer. I saw you weeping. Look, he says to Hezekiah, I'll heal you. Hezekiah didn't even ask anything for sure. He just said, would you please remember? I, I don't know. We, we, we get no indication for sure. Was, was Hezekiah just, he didn't even feel like he ought to ask for anything. He's just like, God, would you please just remember that I've lived for you? Do something. Just, just remember that I've lived for you. I'm not, I'm not even sure what to ask. I don't know if I should ask. I'm just asking you to please remember that I've been faithful and that I've been wholehearted and that I've pleased you in how I've lived. I thought this was very interesting that 
when God addressed his portion of it, Hezekiah's portion of it, he says, I heard your prayer. I saw your tears. Look. I like it. See, because when we get downcast, when we don't know what to do, we're just like in this picture. We start looking down and, and we, we, our head's not up. We, we're not focused on anything that God's doing. We're, we're bent down. We're, we're bent low. We, and God, I, I almost feel like that God was telling him, lift up your head. Look, I will heal you. But I like that next statement. Because on the third day from now, you're going to go worship in my house. I'm going to heal you, and you're going to go to church. That's what he's saying. See, Hezekiah already had this thing down. When Hezekiah had the last problem, remember, he went to God's house. He could have done this at home. There's, there's something special sometimes about just finding a place where we worship. And, and I'm not saying it's got to be in this building. I don't care if you've got to make something at your house. If you've got to have a special place for you, it may be that you have somewhere you drive to or whatever else. I've got some pastor friends that wherever they've lived, and some of them have moved churches and states and everything else, and saw one he posted yesterday, and he, he said, man, I was just remembering some pictures in a state that he'd lived in, and he would drive up to this place that was near some falls, and he said, on Saturday mornings, that's where I would go and, and work on my message. And he said, man, I just had many a time of meeting with God in this. He said, it was a special place. It wasn't a church. It wasn't a building. It was somewhere that he went and he met with God. He made that place be somewhere that he, that he met with God. It may be in your car. Like I said, it may be in, the, in your bedroom. It may be on your back porch. It may be in your backyard. It may be on a swing. Wherever it is, find somewhere that you find, well, hey, when I need to get before God, I kind of I, I try to go to this place. There's a picture that circulates around. It was from a... It was from where a tornado came through. I've seen it several times over the last few years, and there was a grandmother that had a closet that she would pray in. And a tornado came through and wiped out everything on that house except that prayer closet. It just it made it made news. It was on pictures. People were going, We can't believe it because this grandmother would be in that closet and pray. And it was the only thing left standing on that house. Sometimes when we we, we can almost, it's kind of like, you know, Moses out there at the burning bush and God tells him, says, take your, take your sandals off your feet because where you stand is holy ground. Well, because of what the ground was. When the presence of God meets you somewhere, it can, that place can become holy in that moment because God is holy. God tells him, says, I, I heard you. I saw your tears. Look, I'm going to heal you. And on the third day from now, you're going to go up and you're going to worship. I'm going to add 15 years to your life. Now, I'll be honest. On the one hand, I'll be sitting there going, all right, 15 years from now, I'm going to die. <laughs> That'd mess with my brain a little bit. I'm just being honest, you know. But then again, if you knew 15 years from now, that's what you're going to be given. How would those 15 years be lived? Oh, I'm halfway through. Debbie, I'm halfway through my 15 years. Man, I can't, I got to use this well. I know I've only got seven years, you know, seven and a half years left. I've got three years left. I've got two years left. I've got one year left. I've got a week left. I don't know that it was like 15 years exactly to the, but can you imagine? Yet today, we don't know the time, the place, the hour. 
how you live in your life. Are you living it to where that you could turn your face to the wall and say, God, remember how I've lived? God sent Isaiah back and told him, said, I'm going to change this. I want to end with giving you this. If you want to turn to Psalms chapter 3, I want you to see one, uh, one scripture here. This is what I want to end with. When you're faced with situations where you don't know what to do, this is the way that the enemy speaks to you, but this is what God will remind you of. Psalms chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, says this, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there's no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Look, I will heal you. When you don't know what to do, the thing that I really can tell you to do is like that old song said, take it to the Lord in prayer. Yeah, that's hard for us. Because we're going, but tell me something to do. Tell me what our plan of attack is. Tell me how we're going to approach this. Give me five things. Right, when, when things get tough, we're almost like, look, if you'll give me a list, if you'll give me five things that I need to do every day where that I can go and do the five things and feel like I'm doing something. Children of Israel were that way all the time, right? They, they've got the, the Egyptian army chasing them when they come out of captivity in Egypt and, and they come into the Red Sea and, and they're looking, oh, okay, we've got the Red Sea in front of us, we've got the Egyptian army behind us, and they're looking at Moses going, you brought us out here to let us die. Would have been better stayed in slavery. What are we going to do? What's God telling them to do? God says, be still. See the salvation of the Lord. That's that part that we have a hard time with. God, let me help you. Right? Let me help you, God. T tell me a couple things to do. And, and in reality, what he is saying is, bring it to me. Spread it out. Say, God, I need you to see this and hear this. And I need you to do something. God, I know it doesn't always happen that fast in these situations. But you put this in your word for a reason. It was to let us know and see and understand that you've heard my prayer. You've seen my tears. You've not forgotten me. There may be those who say there is no help for him in God.
Thou, Lord, art a shield. 